Welcome to The Winnow, a podcast about dining in the South and beyond. I'm Hannah Raskin, food editor at the Post and Courier. My name is Dave Infante. I'm a food reporter here at the Post and Courier. And today we're going to be talking about a piece Dave has out this week um, about a collaboration involving one of our well-known local breweries. Um, so, Dave, do you want to do you want to introduce this? What? what yeah, absolutely. It's my first uh, my first real boy uh, centerpiece. I'm finally taking the training wheels off a little. Very exciting. And, and we should say for people who are not in the newsroom that a centerpiece means that when it's it's what goes on the front page of our section. So if you get a print, a print edition, this is the first thing you'd see uh, when you turn to the food section. Right. And hopefully you did get a print edition right. and you saw <laughs> uh, the story that I put together about Edmonds Oast, which is a brewery in downtown Charleston. Um, they also run a, a very popular brew pub and a, and a bottle shop. Had, did a brewing collaboration with Ponysaurus, which is a brewery out of Durham, North Carolina. And what made this pretty interesting to me was it was part of a very friendly rollout between the two you know, potential competitors as they entered each other's Carolina market this summer. So uh, a look at how there's still a lot of collaboration and, and cooperative, uh, cooperative, you know, commercial uh, activity in the craft beer space, even though it's getting a lot more crowded. Right. So as, as you say in the story, um, initially cooperation, collaboration was sort of a, a buzzword in the brewing industry, right? That that's sort of what set them apart from, say, folks who made butter. Something, Widgets right? of any game. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, the and the so cutthroat like, butter market. Yeah, 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 we won't go there. <laughs> but um, so that's, that's what set them apart. But then, as you say, the market got increasingly competitive. And so it was harder to maintain that sort of collaborative spirit in, 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 in certain ways. But I also think those of us who watch the beer world from the outside still see evidence of that, right? Like people, they pop up together, they share taps together. So can you run through what makes this, I mean, strategically and logistically a little more sophisticated and maybe a little more interesting than just two breweries having a dinner together? Yeah, for sure. So just to set the set the scene a little bit on the national level, we have over 7,000 breweries in the U.S. Um, at this point. It's the highest level since before Prohibition. Um, obviously, a lot has changed since before Prohibition, but uh, but the number of breweries is is quite a bit quite a bit higher than it ever has been in the modern era. In North Carolina and South Carolina, both we have a ton of breweries. Um, we're seeing a lot pop up in the Low Country. Um, just about thirty in the area, depending on which number you go off and where you draw the line around Charleston. But what I think made this of interest to me beyond the basics of, you know, a collaboration, which uh, does happen quite a bit in craft beer, is that these breweries on paper look like they could be like pretty solid competitors with one another. Um, they fill, in my opinion, um, and, you know, your mileage will vary as a drinker. And certainly the breweries themselves will say that they're um, filling different niches. And this is a little bit more of a subjective call, but um, they're both boutique brewers doing um, excellent liquid, which is like the industry term for the stuff inside the can, as opposed to all the other things that go Marketing, into running. Branding, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Show, you know, logistics and whatnot. They their branding is actually more than passingly similar. I would say uh, they they both have sort of the medieval steampunk vibe going on. Um, white cans, white sixteen ounce cans. Um, these seem like minor things, but um, when you're talking about the decisions that customers make when they're browsing the grocery store aisles to buy this six pack versus that six pack. Like that stuff's huge. And that stuff really like 
you know, it can distinguish a brand or it can, you know, make one brand look a lot like another. So then on the, on the, you know, production side of things are almost the same size. Ponysaurus does about 2,600 barrels a year and uh, Edmonds Oast does about 3,000 barrels a year. By the way, a barrel is uh, two kegs. So the what you think of as a keg uh, is actually a half keg. It's just um, like ABV where you have to divide in half here. You have to multiply it by two. Right. The, yeah. yeah. Proof, you mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, proof. yeah. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> right. So, right. And then it's, and that's 31 gallons is a, is a, a barrel. So, um, so we're not talking about a ton of beer, but they are about the same. These two breweries are about the same size as one another. And so that was really um, what, you know, got me to be interested to look into this further. It's good when one very small brewery collaborates with another very big brewery. You know, the small brewery gets access to a lot of know-how and expertise and great equipment. The big brewery gets the cachet of, um, you know, that, that bringing sort of like an unknown, um, you know, uh, underground uh, uh, brewer and like, you know, putting that on their can with them. That relationship makes a lot of sense to me. It makes a little bit less sense on its surface when they're so similar. Except that, as you're so as you're saying, the argument is that the consumer may confuse them anyhow, so they might as well benefit from that. <laughs> like, I don't know. I mean, I think that I think that um, you know, I think that savvy consumers are the ones who are buying Edmonds Oast. I, I don't think Edmonds Oast or Pony Source is getting a lot of you know shock top drinkers who sure. just you know, hit their heads and decide to pick up a Ponysaurus instead. Right. So there are, we're already talking about a pretty educated consumer and I don't, but I do think that like, you know, standard business practices, uh, don't like make your product look a lot like someone else's don't, um, confuse the customer as to like why your brand is the brand that they want. I mean, these are things that, um, have a lot of applications, in I get pretty much every consumer package good category except for craft beer. And so it's always interesting to see two companies, two successful companies, I might add, uh, cut against the grain on that. Sure. And it does seem like it's also interesting that this is happening in the food world more broadly as well, I think. Um, that you have to possibly redefine who your competition is, that it isn't just the beer that looks like yours, like it, bringing it back to the restaurant sphere. It's not the other guy selling burgers. It's Uber, right? I mean, that's it's, it's I mean, right. right? Like, so <laughs> unpack you, that a minute for someone who doesn't spend as much time thinking about this as you do. Right. So, so um, if you're if you're making the choice to go to a restaurant, that may be the most important decision you have to make for the guy who's trying to sell you a burger um, as opposed to deciding to stay home and call a delivery service like Uber, which is now creating its own kitchens to feed its consumers. So those are two totally separate models. Right. And so in some ways, you're better off as the burger guy supporting who looks like you're compared to the other burger guy because you want people to stay in the habit of going out to eat. Yeah, I think that's a good example. And by the way, that we got to talk about that on the window at some <laughs> point, like the the whole like way that rideshare slash technology companies are right. honing in on the food space, but another story for another time. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think like, um, a lot of craft brewers, including, uh, the folks at, um, Ponysaurus and Edmunds Oast, uh, either told me explicitly or implicitly or whatever. Um, but a lot of craft brewers will be quick to point out that they don't feel as though, uh, they're competing with um, one another so much as they are with uh, the quote unquote big beer. And and so big beer, what's interesting, I think, in beer especially is that the definition of who is big beer has actually changed quite a bit and, and will change quite a bit depending on who you're talking to. So 
40 years ago, big beer was Miller, uh, Coors, and uh, Anheuser-Busch, and then maybe Stroh's out of Detroit, um, and maybe one or two other, uh, uh, Schaefer and uh, Schlitz, mm-hmm. some one or two others. Fast forward to now, and Big Beer is absolutely still Anheuser-Busch, but it's actually Anheuser-Busch InBev. Uh, they're owned by a Belgian conglomerate, Belgian-Brazilian. And Miller Coors, which is a subsidiary of Molson Coors, which is itself a subsidiary of SAB Miller, which confusingly outside of the U.S. is owned by ABI. <laughs> um, so those are those guys are obviously the big macros, but – well, you say it's obvious, but it's not always obvious the consumer. Well, <laughs> those companies are obviously the big guys. The, yes, the thank brands you. that they sell are not obviously right. Right. Um, they are not obviously owned by those companies, and that's right. a source of much contention within the craft beer sure. um, segment in the U.S. Because people think that, for example, uh, well, to use a local example, local-ish, Wicked Weed out of uh, Asheville, North Carolina, was acquired by Anheuser Busch InBev in 2017. Um, it was their, I want to say 10th, uh, of what is now 11 acquisitions, um, of smaller, like originally craft producers. Um, but to the unknowing consumer, uh, who goes up to park circle, for example, here in North Charleston. And, um, there's a, there's a bar right on Montague that has like all the promo swag from wicked weed and they do like pernicious IPA Tuesdays or whatever. And it looks like any other craft brewery, uh, and any other brand. And that's what, um, you know, craft diehards get very upset about because they feel that it's unfair for Anheuser Busch to benefit from the, you know, the, the consumer goodwill towards craft, mm-hmm. um, when actually, you know, Anheuser Busch has all the, uh, all the scale and all the marketing and all the resources. Um, but, whether Edmonds Oast and Ponysaurus compete with one another is, you know, I think that they will, but they're not, they're not really like in a price war, you know, locked in a, in this like death embrace where like they're fighting each other. There's enough room for those types of brands to coexist. Um, but there are regional brewers that are now getting very big to the point where they have very little in common with an Edmonds Oast or a Ponysaurus. I mean, right. you look at a Sierra Nevada, you look at a New Belgium, um, Sam Adams, which is owned by Boston Beer Company, um, you know, these are big uh, Firestone Walker uh, uh, founders. Everyone knows founders all that all day IPA, and that's not a coincidence. It's because they're part owned or not fully owned by Mahao San Miguel, which is a Spanish macro brewer. So those breweries are now much more. Um, People think of them much more as like big beer um, in the craft community. And so it, the collaboration that we're referring to is like a tangible thing people can hold in their hands. Yes. Right? This is a certain beer that they developed. So can you talk through how they developed this? And also, do we know, like, is are they splitting profits 50-50? Do we know how this all plays out financially? So the the beer is called Of Dinosaurs and Horses, and it's sort of a play on um, the two breweries. Uh Yes, like does Edmund ride a horse? I don't know. I don't know what it, <laughs> you know. The dinosaur part is clear. The dinosaur part's pretty clear, yeah. and I think that it plays into the Edmund's Oast thing, where like Edmund, that that's like their whole aesthetic is just sort of like like pastoral, but also like like you know medieval. Okay, I, I don't know. We need an art history major in here to All talk right. about Edmund's Oast labels, but that's a, that's a different uh, different episode. But yeah, and anyway, the, the beer is called of dinosaurs and horses. It's a white. IPA. It's brewed with tangerine puree. I had a chance to sample it while I was reporting this story. It's 
indisputably a good beer. I enjoyed it. Um, I think it's a high quality brew. Um, they, uh, produced, so the way collaborations tend to work is there's a visitor and there's a host, right? So, um, just like there is in a party or anything, um, the visitor in the case of, of dinosaurs and horses was Ponysaurus. So the Ponysaurus people came down to Edmonds Brewing Company up on King Extension. So they didn't meet on neutral ground. They did. Well, you never <laughs> could because that neutral ground would have to have. Belong to somebody else. Well, right. <laughs> who would then be the host. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, it's like. There's, polyamorous, not just polysaurus. Which does all which can, <laughs> a polyamorous I, ponysaurus. Yeah. <laughs> um but they're like that does have like three and four and five way collaborations most certainly do happen. Mm-hmm. Um in fact, our own Charleston Brewery District right. uh, point. does like an ongoing collaboration series where they all kind of get together and talk through what they want to do. Yep. Um but yeah, so there always really has to be a host, and that um, that's dictated beat by like the nature of brewing. You have to have all this equipment. You can't just like show up somewhere and like start brewing a beer, right? right. You need you need fermenters, you need mash tons, you need a bunch of specialized equipment, uh, all this stuff. So Edmonds played host in this case. Um, Rob Meehan, who's the uh, uh, director of production for Ponysaurus, and Nick Hawthorne Johnson, who. Um, is a co-owner of Pony Source and a couple of their teammates came down from Durham um, to Edmonds Oast Brewing Company, met up with Cameron Reed, who's the head brewer for Edmonds Oast, Scott Shore, who's an owner of uh, Edmonds Oast, and Brandon Plyler, who, um, and a bunch of other folks there. And they came up with uh, this idea for this beer. And this can go a bunch of different ways. And Cameron Reed told me that it's really a pleasure to work with the folks at Pony Source because like, he knows these guys are pros and they know he's a pro like they're that Edmonds Oast are, are pros. So there's not a lot of that minutia where it's like, all right, like do these guys actually have like the pH levels properly balanced on their water? And like, is the, is the malt like, you know, properly you know stored. So there's no like quality control issues. So they can get right down to like the conceptual conversation of like, what kind of beer do we want to brew? Let me ask that. This is a very, speaking of minutiae, this is probably an overly specific question, but it's not like they're forming a new LLC or anything like that, right? So where does the liability fall if something goes wrong with um, this beer? I, without knowing this for sure, I feel pretty confident in saying that the liability would fall with Edmonds The host, Yeah, right? the okay, host brewer. Yep, yep. Um, they're... So they have an insurance policy um, just the way any brewery does to operate or any business does to operate. Um, And since it's coming from their production facility, uh, I think that they would shoulder – my guess is 100% of the liability. I would imagine. I guess what I'm getting at is there are there's still trust involved here, right? That this is not an entirely, I mean, it's not an illegal operation, but it's not hammered out legally the way some business partnerships are. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So this is not like Pepsi, you know. Uh, uh, calling up, or, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, you know, reams of documents that go into this collaboration. Right. This is in uh, one of my colleagues in the space, and I'm blanking on who wrote this, but had done a pretty good report on like how collaborations in the craft beer community shake out. And um, his, his, according to his reporting, um, they, every single one that he covered was just a handshake agreement. It's right. all just people knowing each other and being like, Oh, we should yeah, work together. Do this. Yeah. And you said there are some instances out West where it sort of dissolved or fell apart or it didn't have a happy ending. Yeah. So in the piece, uh, which again is, is in the, is in today's food section. And it's also online at postincurrier.com forward slash food. Uh, you know, I was trying to explain that this is, 
you know, this was very, very common in craft beer, um, especially early on in this decade, um, when everyone is still growing at this tremendous rate, the market is expanding, it's invincible, craft beer is going to conquer the world. Um, but yeah, as markets have gotten tighter, it, it does occasionally get a little awkward. And so I use the example of Colorado, where it's, I think it's the fourth most dense uh state for breweries in the country. Um, I think, what is it? 9.2 breweries per 21 year old, every hundred thousand 21 year olds, uh, <laughs> vaguely per capita. Um, and you know, as stuff gets more competitive there, like every once in a while, like, um, there was a brewery, um, that collaborated with, uh, a much larger brewery to brew like a coconut porter and, that beer actually was very successful, commercially successful. It was, people were buying it, a lot of it, and so that larger brewery decided, you know, we're gonna we're gonna Make take ours. right. Yeah. This is great. Like we now have a very popular beer. We're gonna continue to package it and sell it and whatever. And the smaller brewery was like, uh, well, like, are we gonna get part of that? Or <laughs> yeah. and that can be the downside of of those handshake agreements, yeah. right? It's like, well, you never signed any documents. Right, like, right, no, right. you're not gonna get a part of it. And so that can be really tough. Most of the time, I mean, the joke on uh or the you know, the line in craft brewing is that like it's ninety nine percent asshole free. That's like what everyone says about the space or everyone used to at least. Um, so most of the time it doesn't work out poorly, but in the cases where things get a little bit more competitive yeah. um, and rubber meets road, um, oftentimes these brewers are not, you know, protected by, uh, you know, any contract provisions because there was no contract to begin with. Right. And so although there are multiple examples, as you said, were documented in your colleague's piece or out west, this this really is new and original for, for South Carolina or at least as part of it. Right? I mean, I think it's there's certainly collaborations happening. And, and I don't want to make the claim that this collaboration on its own is what, like, you know, what makes it stand out. But I do think that to have a, like similar size breweries to um, enter each other's home markets mm -hmm. and to across do state lines, across not state just lines, like yeah. up to Columbia, but right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and to do so like, you know, just with like some of that old, like craft, like collegiality, mm -hmm. um, it, it's cool to see. And like, yeah. it's, it's, um, it's, it does happen it's just that it happens, I think, less and less <laughs> these days. Yeah. And so it's nice to see two brewers at the top of their game, um, you know, still embracing that notion that rising tides lift all boats. Um, right. it's, it's certainly not something that um, you're seeing all the time nationally anymore. Gotcha. So if people want to go drink this, is it already on the market? So here's the problem with the collaboration itself of dinosaurs and horses. They brewed 75 barrels of it and it's all already sold to. Oh, wait. So that's only 150 kegs. It's only 150 kegs. All but right. So I that's think, like one good party. Right. Like, right. <laughs> what kind of parties <laughs> are you going to? to my house, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's. Uh, so I think most of it went into cans, although I bet you they reserved some stuff for kegs. Sure. But most of it. All of it is packaged and sold to retailers. So mm. as you know, um, you know, in a three-tiered yeah. system, the producer has to then sell it to a middleman, the distributor, um, who then has to sell it to a retailer who then sells it to you or I to drink it. Right. Um, so of Dinosaurs and Horses was 100% pre-sold. Timmons Pettigrew, who's the director of operations at Edmund Zos, confirmed to me that before they had even put any ingredients into mm -hmm. the equipment to start that first 15-barrel uh, test batch um, – it was distributors had already bought the whole thing. I mean, it went 
about half and half from North in North Carolina and South Carolina. And it's actually exclusively to retailers or could that have gone to commercial accounts at restaurants or bars? It as well? could have okay. and maybe did. Okay. Um, I, I didn't get that specific gotcha. with him, but in any case, now, if there's more of dinosaurs and horses, it's mm-hmm. on the shelves of a grocery store or a bottle shop or, or, yeah. So, like, it's not, it is not something that they're going to brew consistently, mm-hmm. at least not for the time being. I do know that uh, fans of either brewery can look forward to um, a collaboration that Edmund Zost is going to be doing at Pony Soros's place. So, they're going to oh, flip great. the script and Edmund oh, cool. Zost is going to go up to Durham. Um, and do another collaboration brew with Pony Source and presumably a similar arrangement at that point where half of that will be distributed in South Carolina. And in a funny little coincidence in the story, um, they actually share a distributor mm-hmm. for each other's markets. Right. So, right, right, which right. is a little I, unusual. I, yeah, like, a little unusual. And also a little insidery. Like, it's super like, it's, insi- it's only yeah. so funny to most people. <laughs> right. that they have. Yeah, that was like, where, yeah, you like that, struck through most of those I lines. <laughs> A lot of humor and distributorship. <laughs> <laughs> well, the joke but, <laughs> amongst beer writers is uh, we spend so much time fleshing out like big graphs on like how you know paragraphs on sure. how distribution works because it dr- genuinely oh, is so so important. So important. So and important. then editors take one look at that and like reduce it to one sentence. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, absolutely not publishing yeah. all of this nonsense about distributors. Right. Right. So that's yeah. my eternal struggle. But yeah. yeah, no, but yeah, they do share uh distributorship. Um so Edmund's Oast is distributed in North Carolina by Advantage Distributing, which is based in Ladson, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um and Pony Source is distributed in South Carolina by Advantage. Um and so presumably if and when that second collaboration occurs and you're looking to get your hands on some of that Ponysaurus Edmondsos collab, um, it will have passed through the hands of uh, of Advantage at that point. Awesome. And I actually want to make a quick media note about what you just said. So, you know, I struck out all that distributorship business because we write for a general audience yep. and we don't assume that everybody cares, but I want to remind folks that there's we know more than what ends up on the page and we are always, I think I speak for both of us, we're always up for conversation about what you read. Um, oh, yeah. You know what I I mean, so we've got our Facebook page, our Facebook group for the food section. We'd love to continue these conversations. So, um, you know, just because you don't see something reflected in the story doesn't mean we wouldn't love to have a conversation about it. It's just we write for write for everybody. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that the Facebook page, we're already seeing a lot of that yeah. happen. And like the group is really, um, you know, it's been growing tremendously and we appreciate everyone who's already a part of it and is, is a listener of the window. But, um, but yeah, like being able to like add like little tidbits of like s- stuff that basically got left on the cutting room floor totally. and, and, you know, s- things that came up in reporting that didn't quite fit, um, is, is a big purpose of what that group is. And yeah. so please, please, if people have more questions or want to talk about stuff more, um, you know, that's a great place to do it. So uh, let's flip the script. We've done enough talking about me. Hannah, you had a big, well, you have a lot of stuff coming out at any given week, but you had a big review come out this week. Uh, what did you review? Uh, well, I mean, I don't know if it's big. I try and keep all my reviews to the same word count, but uh, it is. I reviewed Dashi in North Charleston, which has had an interesting local trajectory. They started out as a food truck. Um, at the time, the chef was still working at Prohibition, I believe, an Upper King Street restaurant, um, and eventually was able to parlay that into a full time job and now a permanent restaurant space. So what's interesting about Dashi is um, they are one of the few places I'm aware of currently that is 
embracing fusion cuisine. I mean, it, that is fusion is often a, seen now as sort of a dirty word in culinary circles. Right. Um, Dashi is quite proud to have taken four international influences and melded them to their needs. Um, so, as I wrote in the review, um, you can what they're um, what where they're taking inspiration from is kind of listed on the ice cream list because you can get a Thai sundae, a Spanish sundae. I think it's a Mexican Sunday. Anyways, and each one is broken up to here are the ingredients that we associate with this cuisine. And you can get them on ice cream for a Sunday, or you can get them in noodle bowls, or you can get them in steam buns, or you can get them on a sandwich or on a salad, and you just kind of pick and choose from the country. Like it's not it's it's maybe not my thing, but I thought what was most interesting about the whole enterprise is when I had written about this at the time of their debut as a food truck. They had to be fairly considered a, a pretty offensive logo. Um, what was the logo? The for logo those who didn't consisted know? of so it was sort of this. It's a caricature. Uh, it, it had a sombrero, slanted eyes, uh, a Fu Manchu, and it was. I at the time uh, sent it off to a professor of I believe Latino studies. I can't remember his exact title. Um, in California, and he said, "Yeah, this is pretty much a mashup of all the racist caricatures from the 20s and 30s you could find." So it was racist fusion. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I took tremendous exception to this logo. Um, they have altered it slightly since then. Now that the restaurant has begun, he no longer has slanted eyes. Instead, he has a bow tie made of chopsticks, and I think maybe the sombrero shrunk a little bit. I remain troubled by it, and I realize some readers may not. Um, and I did go back and forth as to how much of this I should go into in the review because I'm fully aware that there are restaurant patrons who would say that this is not necessarily you know, essential to your experience there. This is just a logo. This is just branding. To me, and I had this discussion almost every time I went on a review visit, every, you know, whoever I brought with me, they were aware – that this logo caused offense, and they pretty much stuck with it. I don't know. So that that's one of the issues I raise. I mean, I don't know if we should be concerned by this or not. I personally, in my individual choices, it's it's not for me. Right. Yeah. And that's your call, obviously, yeah. as a personal as a diner. Person. Right. But Correct. you're also the paper critic. And so Correct. you went and so you went. evaluated it on its merits. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. So if I did not have a professional obligation, I think, you know, it's for instance, if I if it was a place like in Jersey, I'd probably pass it by based on that alone. But I have a responsibility. Don't bring Jersey in. Place, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I have a responsibility to readers. And so that means going and evaluating the food. Um, but as I said, I did include this in the review because to me it is germane to their outlook uh, on the world culinarily and otherwise. Um, and I think it's information that that readers should have. But, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not saying they should reach the same conclusion I did, but that's how I feel about it. Well, I think when you say it's information that, that readers should have, I think it's important. You know, I work alongside you, so I understand, I think, somewhat how you make these decisions. And I certainly make them as, as a writer as well. And like, the reason that, you know, you probably put that in the review is not to to score points with social justice warriors <laughs> or to incite, um, you know, incite a Facebook mob or a Yelp mob. Um, but it is because we talk a lot about in 2019 about how, you know, food and, and beverage is like a direct reflection of culture. 
And we also talk a lot about voting with our dollars, right? And about deciding whether the businesses that you patronize are squaring with your personal ethos. And so um, I think like when you, you, when you make that decision to put it in because you think it's germane, the reason that it's important is because, you know, people want to know that whether they choose to eat there is their call. Right. Right. And I, as I said, I'm fully aware that that logo may make certain people want to eat there. Yeah. I've right, gone through right. this. So, so I'm just giving that information as you say, because these decisions involve more than, you know, for many people, what tastes the best on this block. Right. So. What tastes the best at Dashi? Uh, one of those Sundays is really good. Really? <laughs> you know, so this is the thing that the Spanish Sunday is good. The funny thing is, despite all of these sort of um, convoluted Latin and Asian influences that they claim and try and reinterpret, it's that which falls within the European framework that's really kind of <laughs> the best stuff. So like they make this, you know, I, they may be calling it pan con tomate, maybe they're not. I mean, this is supposed to be some sort of tribute to a Spanish, uh, you know, tomato bread. Um, it tastes exactly like a frozen French bread pizza and it is great. I mean, but it is so, it is more Italian and American than any huh. anything else. It's good though. Yeah. It's really good. Okay. You know, it's, it's pizza. Yeah. It's pizza's good. Ice cream's good. Like simple stuff is good. Um, I mean, one of the very best things about this restaurant is they're serving really affordable food in a great looking, lo- you know, dining Where is the location? It's on Remount Road. Okay. Yeah. So it's up in North Charleston, a part that... Um, you know, it could use more dining options, honestly. So that's cool. Like, and you can. That's awesome. Right? Yeah. That that I love. And, you know, you can get a, a real, you know, get a full lunch for like eight fifty. Awesome. Incredible. You know, prices are great. Yeah. Um, so I think they're doing a lot right. But I also am aware that they're making decisions that not everybody's going to agree with. Yeah. Uh, so it's a review with some nuance is what you're saying. <laughs> I try. <laughs> I say that whether it's Nailed true it. or not. Uh, well, I think that brings us to a good point that I wanted to make. I work here at the newspaper. You work at the newspaper. Mr. Producer Emery works at the newspaper. I do. <laughs> we read the newspaper. Um, but for those uh, listeners of The Winnow who don't have subscriptions to the newspaper, um, you can only read a few of our articles every week uh, before you are cut off by the paywall, the big bad paywall. And I would ask, and I think probably everyone here would ask that you consider subscribing to the newspaper, not just because that's how the newspaper makes money, but because um, you can't just know everything you need to know about Dashi without reading Hannah Raskin's review of Dashi. She went into a lot of detail. She spent a lot of time um, reporting this. Uh, She went to dine there several times. Um, A quick treatment on the podcast is not going to do it justice and being able to read that and also not limiting yourself to only a couple things (laughs) over the course of the week is crucial. Right. I mean, I think there are things you can communicate via social media or just by talking to your friends. You know, if you're looking for a weather report or the score of a game, those things, you know, maybe you don't need to read it all. But when I think about all the time you spent reporting the story we talked about earlier, I mean, there is no one sentence that's going to sum that up. So I hope people will read the entire story, which again requires either counting against your paywall or subscribing, which we'd love you to do so we can have more and more of these, as you say, nuanced conversations. And so, how do listeners of Winnow subscribe to the Post and Courier? Tell them. Go to postandcourier.com. And the big, <laughs> what color is the button, Mr. Producer? It is orange. I know it is because I made it orange. 
<laughs> so the big orange button, click subscribe. We would really appreciate it. And again, it's not just because this is the way this this company makes money, but it's also because there's a lot of work that goes into this stuff. And we can't just sum it up on Twitter or uh, on the winnow. Right. Um, because it you know, is often more complicated. Than I love that. this about this orange thing. Like if someone bought 10,000 subscriptions, would you make it color of their choosing? Like sure, <laughs> yeah. We, we made it orange because we, uh, Google hired a consulting firm and they told us make it orange. Awesome. I, Those consultants, man, right? They've yeah. got yeah. it all figured out. Reason I need to learn how to be bucks. a consultant. Right. Yeah, <laughs> don't we all? Don't right. we all? Okay. All right, so look for the orange button. Go, yeah, go to pushandcareer.com, click on the orange button, subscribe. The winnow remains free, and so does the food newsletter, which you can and should subscribe to at postandcareer.com forward slash newsletters. Uh, but if you'd like to read more of our reporting in more detail, and we hope you would, that's how to do it. All right, and that is all for this edition of The Winnow. Uh, again, I'm Hannah Raskin. You can reach me at hraskin at postandcourier.com. I'm Dave Infante. That's D Infante at postandcourier.com. See you next week. Bye. And that's all for this episode of The Winnow. The Winnow is a production of The Post and Courier in Charleston, South Carolina. It was edited and directed by me. I'm J.M. Ray Parker. See y'all later.